one of my favorite passages from the suttas, as some of you know, uh, is found in uh, several suttas. Uh, it's the way that the Buddha sometimes ended his Dharma talks. Sometimes he would end his talks by saying, over there are the roots of trees, over there empty dwellings. Practice jhana monks. Don't be heedless. Don't later fall into regret. This is our message to you. Over there are the roots of trees. Over there are empty dwellings. Practice jhana. The Buddha is describing uh, conditions that are conducive to practice. Conditions that are conducive to the development of jhana, concentration. Seclusion, silence. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta where the Buddha gives the, the basic elemental instructions for practicing mindfulness, he begins the instructions this way. There is the case where a monk, having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree or to an empty building, sits down, folding his legs crosswise, holding his body erect, and establishing mindfulness to the fore. Always mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree, or to an empty building. And the first instruction, of course, is to practice mindfulness of breathing. So again, he's describing conditions that support practice. He's describing the conditions that support mindfulness of breathing. Conditions of seclusion, silence. Having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree, over there are the roots of trees, describing uh, settings in nature where we can practice, where we can develop breath meditation. Nature, of course, supports us. So we come to places like this. Uh, we remove ourselves for a while from the city, those of us who live in cities, uh, and come to a place like this, take a step back from the busy world, the noisy world, and of course, uh, nature brightens the mind. We connect to the goodness in the world, brings brightness to the heart, appreciation, which supports our practice and the development of concentration. And then of course, to be able to practice with, in a place like this with dear friends, with other beings who are committed to this practice to the development of concentration and insight, and wisdom, compassion, love, joy, and peace. The practice with others uh, brightens the mind. We recognize the goodness of others and it brings joy to the mind. We're grateful for these beings who are practicing the Dharma and practicing with us and supporting us in our own practice. These are conditions that are conducive to practice. We talked last night a little bit about restraint of the senses. So in a retreat like this, uh, an important aspect of the conditions that we are uh, establishing and, and following here is to restrain ourselves from sense experience withdrawal from certain sense experience, sense pleasures, pleasures of the world that we might normally 
indulgent, the computer, the internet, the phone, and so on and so forth. And then on a retreat like this, uh, coming to a place like this, uh, we have our basic needs met. Our needs are met here. We don't have to worry really about taking care of our basic needs. Uh, we have food, we have a cook who's providing us with food and we're all chipping in there in the kitchen. Uh, but, uh, you know, because of you know, the generosity and the support of the yogis and the cook uh, and the staff here, uh, we're able to uh, have our basic needs met. We don't have to worry for the most part about any of the needs of food, clothing, and shelter. We can devote ourselves during this eight, day to, eight days to Dharma practice. You know, once we get back home, you know, got to think about these other things. So these conditions, these conditions are very conducive to our practice. They're suitable for practice. They're not perfect. You probably noticed that over the last day and a half, two days that we've been here. How long have we been here? Two and a half days, right? Conditions are suitable for practice, they're conducive for practice, but they're not perfect. They're good enough. They're good enough. This is a very important theme in the Thai forest tradition, a, te uh, a theme that is uh, spoken to in the Thai monasteries. Uh, life at the monastery is conducive to Dharma practice, conducive to the development of breath meditation and concentration. It's not perfect, but it's good enough. It's good enough. So I described certain conditions that support us in practice. You know, conditions are the stuff of the conditioned realm. Conditions are the stuff of the conditioned realm. The human realm is a conditioned realm. The conditioned realm, by its nature, is not perfect. It's not a perfect realm. In fact, what the teachings of the Buddha tell us, suggest, and what we're asked to understand uh, is that uh, the conditioned realm uh, includes an inherent, inherent in the conditioned realm is an unsatisfactoriness. There's an element of unsatisfactoriness in the conditioned realm. This is the nature of the conditioned realm, conditioned things. It's the way it is. The conditioned realm is imbued with an inherent unsatisfactoriness. It's the way it is. It's the law. The Thai forest master Ajahn Buddhadasa used to say, you know, don't go against the law. You know, respect the law. This is the law of the conditioned realm. The conditioned realm is inconstant. Things, sankara, in the conditioned realm are subject to change. Anicca vata sankara. Impermanent are conditioned things. All conditioned things. If it's, you know, the lamp, 
the clock, all the beings in this room, everything, this whole room, this whole center, this space, this retreat center, all of this human world, this conditioned realm, is in constant subject to change, birth and death. The conditioned realm is in a constant state of change and flux, fluctuating between agreeable experience, disagreeable experience, and neutral experience. This is the nature of this realm. You know, and that fluctuation is, 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 is almost entirely unpredictable. It's unpredictable. I mean, how much in a life is predictable? How much in a life is predictable? How much in a day is predictable? How much of what happened today could you have predicted? How much in a sitting, in one sitting, is predictable? I mean, what happens in a sitting, in meditation, from breath to breath, is really unpredictable. Any period of meditation is unpredictable, subject to change, a fluctuation of agreeable and disagreeable and neutral experience. One of my teachers, Eugene Cash, used to like to talk about this a lot, and, and he would say, you know, something that he said always, always struck me. He said, you know, we think we know what's going to happen. You know, we think, we, that's delusion. You know, it's like, we think we know what's going to happen. We really have hardly any idea what's going to happen from moment to moment, from day to day in this life. So life in this conditioned realm is, uh, includes pleasure and pain. Pleasure and pain. The Buddha characterized the modalities of change as the eight vicissitudes, right? The four pairs of change, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, status and disrepute, praise and blame. So the human realm is anicca, inconstant, inconstant. The experience of the day of a retreat, the conditions you know, that we are blessed to be able to uh, take part in here on this retreat are anicca, they're inconstant. They fluctuate between agreeable and disagreeable and neutral experience, and it's unpredictable. And their anatta, their anatta, conditioned experience, is not self. Things of the world are not self. The experiences of the body, of the senses, of the six senses, including the mind, are not self. So, what that means is they're not fixed, right? In part, what that means is they're not fixed. You know, they're conditioned experiences. All the experiences of the senses are conditioned, right? You know, any sound that you hear, any sensation that you have in the body, any thought that arises in the mind, any sensation in, in the body, anything that you see in any moment, it's all conditioned. Nothing is fixed. It's not, nothing is fixed. One way the Ajans like to talk about this anatta nature of things is, you know, we don't own it. We don't own it, and it's largely not in our control. It's largely not in our control. And because of its inconstant, impermanent, 
and anatta, not-self nature, conditioned experience is unsatisfactory. The Buddha would often go through dialogues with students and he'd say, you know, are the experiences of the aggregates or are the experiences of the different senses impermanent, subject to change? Yes, blessed one, they are. Uh, because they're subject to change, are they self? Are they fixed? No, they're not self. If Lord, Buddha, given the fact that they're impermanent and not self, can we say that these experiences are satisfactory? No, Lord, they're unsatisfactory. They don't last. They're changeable. They're unpredictable. They're not ours. Conditioned experience is, is imbued with an inherent unsatisfactoriness. An inherent unsatisfactoriness. It's just the nature of the way things are. So we have conditions here, we establish conditions, we develop conditions that are conducive to practice that are good enough, that are good enough, but they're not perfect. The conditions are inconstant. They're changing. They're anatta. They're largely unpredictable and out of our control. They're imbued with an inherent unsatisfactoriness. Things are unreliable. Things are unreliable. You know, our experience in this life and on this retreat is always going to include disagreeable elements. You know, there's, there's any retreat that you go on, it's not just this retreat, is going to include disagreeable elements. Any day in life is going to include, include disagreeable elements, an element of dissonance and dis-ease. Things aren't always going to go according to plan. You know, we think it should, right? I mean, that's the conceit that Eugene was talking about, right? The, it's a conceit, really. We think things should go according to plan. Things aren't always going to go the way that we want them to go. We think they should go the way that we want them to go, right? That's our conceit. I have a way that I want things to go, and I'm going to try to make them go that way, and they should go that way. You know, that's a conceit. They're never going to go the way that we want them to go. Sometimes they might. A lot of the time they won't. It's the way it is. It's the way it is. So on the retreat, conditions are not perfect. They're good enough. They're good enough so that we can develop mindfulness of breathing, so that we can do what has to be done. That's our job here, is not to uh, have an experience that includes perfect conditions. It's to be in a place where conditions are good enough so that we can do our job, which is to cultivate mindfulness of breathing, to develop concentration, to do what has to be done so that we can develop concentration and wisdom and compassion and love so that we can develop our goodness. Conditions don't have to be perfect for that. Conditions don't have to be perfect for that. Life doesn't have to be perfect for that. The Buddha said in the Anapanasati Sutta, you know, if you develop mindfulness of breathing, the whole path will unfold for you. So here the conditions are good enough to develop mindfulness of breathing. I promise you, they're good enough. They're good enough. 
If you can develop mindfulness of breathing, the four foundations of mindfulness will develop. The seven factors for awakening will develop and come to fruition. You'll develop wisdom and release from suffering. You'll know true happiness. Conditions don't have to be perfect. They just have to be good enough. They just have to be good enough. In meditation, the meditation itself doesn't have to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect. The meditation, you're not going to have one perfect meditation on this retreat. Have you ever, ever? <laughs> Most of you have been meditating a really long time. I've been meditating since 1975. I've never had a perfect meditation. You're not going to have a perfect meditation. You don't have to have a perfect meditation. Some reason, you know, that's again another conceit. We have to think, I have to have a perfect meditation if I'm going to get to where I need to get to. You don't have to have a perfect meditation. Your meditation has to be good enough. It's got to be good enough. You know, but that doesn't mean it has to be perfect. Conditions don't have to be perfect. So, just as the Thai Ajans teach, you know, the monks and the nuns and the lay people, you know, as Dharma students, you know, we learn to develop this attitude, this attitude that it's good enough. It's good enough. Conditions are good enough. The way things are is good enough. We learn to develop acceptance with what is, with what is. We learn to develop acceptance with things that are disagreeable. We learn to develop acceptance when things aren't going the way we'd like them to go. So acceptance is a quality that we have. It's a function of equanimity. We all have equanimity. We all have equanimity as part of our citta, as part of our birthright, if you will. You know, the Buddha, uh, you know, on the night of his awakening, you know, Mara assailed him. You know, the Buddha, on the night of his awakening, Mara assailed him. He didn't have a perfect meditation. He was bombarded by Mara. You think you had it bad. Armies of Mara in full force. You know, the Buddha just stood there, you know, with equanimity, acceptance. You know, Mara said, who do you think you are? I'm giving you all my best shots. And the Buddha just touched the earth. You know, this is my birthright. You know, I have this quality, this goodness. Your equanimity is, is, is a quality of your goodness. Equanimity includes acceptance. So you all have that quality. And I think the Buddha wasn't the only one with equanimity and acceptance. You all have that as human beings. As human beings in the human heart, you have this quality of acceptance. We have to learn to develop it, right? This is what Tanasarabhiku talks about a lot. You know, we have this goodness, but it has to be developed. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. We're not here to have a perfect experience. We're here to develop qualities like acceptance so that we can live in this imperfect world and create conditions through meditation that are good enough so that we can awaken and know true happiness in this imperfect world. So acceptance is developed, as I always say, in large part by seeing non-acceptance, or at least it begins, this process of developing acceptance is developed by seeing non-acceptance. Seeing non-acceptance.
So this is our task, you know, in many aspects of life, in many ways, you know, you sort of have two options. You can rail against things not being the way that you'd like to let them to be, or you can cultivate acceptance. And today you were probably faced with that choice on any number of occasions, right? You could rail about things not going the way that you wanted them to go, the meditation not going the way that you wanted it to go, the body not being the way that you wanted it to be, the mind that you not being the way that you wanted it to be, the conditions, which are pretty darn good. You know? The title of this talk is really good enough. For this retreat, I could say pretty darn good. Pretty darn good. You know? uh, but you know, we could rail against things, and that was a choice that we probably had on many occasions today, to rail against things not going the way that we want them to go or the way that we, in our conceit, think that they should go, or we can cultivate acceptance. Now, sometimes you can change things, right? Sometimes you can change things. Many things you can't. Can't change the weather, really. Yeah. Might rain tomorrow. Might rain. Can't really change that. I wanted to walk outside. I've had some great moments of insight. If I just had one more day of walking outside in 70 and 80 degree weather, you know, uh, you know, I think I could, I could hit that mark. You know, it's like, you, the, really the way that you're going to hit that mark, probably, is if you can cultivate acceptance when things don't go the way they want to go and it rains tomorrow, right? Sometimes we can change things. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You know, that's wisdom, knowing what you can change. So this practice of developing acceptance uh, oftentimes begins with seeing non-acceptance, right? It begins with seeing that we're not accepting. And that's usually where our uh, development in terms of developing our goodness, developing wisdom, developing the heart begins. It begins with seeing something that's not in tune with the heart, right? That's the first noble truth. So we develop acceptance in large part by seeing non-acceptance, seeing not wanting the way things are, not wanting the conditions that are, that we're being uh, that we're being faced with, that we're encountering, uh, or wanting something else, right? That's the wanting mind, the wanting mind. Wanting to conditions to be a certain way. Wanting conditions to be a certain way. Maybe it's the weather, it's too hot. It's too hot. A couple of years ago, too cold, right? Maybe it's the room. The bed isn't perfect. It's probably good enough so that you can get a, a, a halfway decent night's sleep so you can meditate. I mean, you've got five or six beds to choose from, probably, right? You know? I can probably find one that's good enough. The shower? It's on the borderline of good enough in my room. You know? But there's enough to take a shower. Pillow, you know, this, now we're really getting into the, you know, the fine points of, 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 of conditions that are necessary for awakening, right? The pillow's got to be just right, right? <laughs> the food, fill in the blank. 
the meditation hall, the walking area, the yogi job. Now, there's going to be elements of, in all of those conditions that I just mentioned, that you're going to probably find unsatisfactory. Some things that you might find satisfactory. Just the nature of experience in the conditioned realm. So, in developing acceptance, we see when we're at odds with our experience, when we're fighting our experience, when we're not wanting things to be the way they are, when we're wanting things to be a different way, and we bring insight. You know, we bring insight. So equanimity, which is, you know, what is, you know, acceptance is a function of equanimity. Equanimity is rooted in insight. The insight is this is the way it is in the conditioned realm. All conditioned things are impermanent, anatta, and inherently unsatisfactory. This is the law. So we, we, we learn to incline to this insight using fabrication, right? So you remind yourself, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. This is the way it is in the human realm. This is the way it is in the conditioned realm. Experience is inherently unsatisfactory in this realm. There's always going to be disagreeable experience. There's always going to be pleasure and pain. Experience is unreliable, subject to change. Conditioned experience can't bring a lasting happiness. It doesn't last. How can it bring a lasting happiness? It doesn't last. So this is the skillful use of the mind. And this is what we have to do as Dharma students in developing our skill. We talked about this last night. It's the skillful use of the mind, using the mind to cultivate the path, using the mind to cultivate equanimity and acceptance. Oh, I see non-acceptance. I see not wanting things to be the way they are. Well, this is the way it is in the human realm. This is the way it is. Things don't go the way that I want them to go all of the time, most of the time. Things are inherently unsatisfactory. This is the way it is in the human realm. This is how we guide ourselves through the retreat, through life. I always like to say every meditation is a guided meditation and you're guiding the meditation, right? You know, life is a guided meditation, you know, and you're guiding yourself through life. And this is how you guide yourself through life. Oh, there I am. You know, not accepting things the way they are right now, not accepting these conditions, not accepting the external conditions, not accepting the internal conditions of body and mind the way they are right now. Inclining to insight. Oh, this is the way it is in the human realm. The heart understands that. The mind objects vociferously. The heart understands that conditioned experience is un inherently unsatisfactory. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. So we're using the mind to connect to the truth, the truth that's already in the heart. We use the mind, we use fabrication to remind ourselves, this is the way it is. This is the way it is in the conditioned realm. This is the way it is in the human realm. It's inherently unsatisfactory. The heart understands that. And we can cultivate in acceptance through simple fabrication. Sometimes it's as simple as 
Can I have acceptance? What usually doesn't work for me is have acceptance, dummy. You know, it's like, can I have acceptance? You know, and you're inclining yourself to the acceptance, the equanimity that's in the heart. It's like, whenever I do that, can I have acceptance? It's like, damn, it's right there. I should have been looking there all along. You know, it's like right there in the heart, right? Can I have acceptance? The heart says, yeah, yeah, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. You've been fighting. This is the way it is in the human realm. Heart understands. So we're learning to use the mind to turn to the heart. The heart understands. Can I have acceptance? Can I have acceptance? It's right there in the heart. It's right there. It's right there. Acceptance is in the heart. So we learn to cultivate acceptance in regard to our practice, in regard to how the practice is going. This is the real nuts and bolts of being here on this retreat, in this conditioned realm, where things are good enough but not perfect, where conditions are going to include an element of unsatisfactoriness. So is there a lack of acceptance in any way, shape, or form with regard to your practice? Was there today? Did you notice that? Was there wanting things to be going differently than the way that they were? Was there not wanting things to be going the way that they were going? Anybody? Anybody? You know, the path is fabricated. The path is fabricated. The path is conditioned. Concentration is, is, is a fabricated experience. You know, we, we, you know, the path gets us to the unfabricated, but the path is fabricated. So there's going to be ups and downs in concentration practice and in breath meditation practice and meditation. There's going to be disagreeable experience. I mean, I, I don't have time in, in all the Dharma talks on this retreat to go through, you know, the, you know, the, the litany of potential disagreeable experiences that you could have in one meditation. You know? You know? Uh, you know, suffice it to say, you know, experiences of body and mind can be disagreeable. Experiences of the body may be disagreeable. There may be pain. It's the nature of the body. It's the nature of the body. There may be unpleasant sensations in the meditation. So is there acceptance of that, or is there a not wanting those unpleasant sensations? If only I could get rid of this sensation. If only this pain would go away, then I could really, you know, do that meditation the way he's talking about doing it. You know, if only this pain would go away. If only I had a different body. Right? Maybe I need to move. Maybe I need to sit in a chair. Maybe I need to get a cushion. Maybe I need to get a bench. Maybe I need to lie down. Maybe I need to stand on one foot. Maybe I need to twist the body that way and turn that way. Okay? All these ways that we're trying to manipulate conditioned experience. I, I went through that many, many, many retreats. I remember one retreat at Spirit Rock, affectionately known, at least in my mind, as the rock. You know? Uh, uh, you know, it was a month-long retreat you know, and I had this pain in the back of my, you know, back of my shoulder, you know, the whole retreat, you know, and it was just, I, I just couldn't accept it. 
I was trying everything I could possibly do, you know? Every machination, every strategy, you know? To, if I could only get rid of this pain, I could have a good retreat. So much effort in trying to manage the pain and getting rid of it. So much not wanting it. So much wanting to have another experience. It was very difficult, but I learned on that retreat to have acceptance. To accept the pain. This is the way it is. This is the way it is. You know, I had, I had to go through that almost a month of not accepting the pain that I had in the body. But I learned acceptance through that process, to learn to accept things the way that they are. We're learning to accept what it is. If it's pain, we learn to cultivate acceptance, to put it to the side, not to give it any weight, not to give it any weight, not to get involved in things that we can't control, and to move forward. The conditions may not be perfect, the body is not perfect, but they're good enough. Nobody has a perfect body. Nobody has the perfect body for meditation. Everybody's going to have pain in the body as a human being. Everybody's going to have unpleasant sensations in the body. Our, our task is to learn to be able to accept what is. I remember years and years ago I was going on a retreat at IMS, and uh, somebody, I got a ride, like through a carpool, you know, and there was this young, young fella, he was probably kind of young at that time. He was younger than I was, you know, and he was a young guy, in his early 20s, and like he was an Ashtanga yoga student, you know, Ashtanga yoga is like, those are the really hardcore yoga guys, right? You know, and we were talking on the, you know, and it was his first retreat, but he'd been doing this Ashtanga yoga for years. He's this tall, lean, limber guy. He goes, yeah, I'm not going to use a cushion. No, we, I just sit on the floor, you know. All right, we'll see what we'll see. You know? So, you know, the first couple of days, and I was sitting in the front. He was like sort of halfway back. And in the first couple of days, I'd walk to the back of the hall to go out the exit door at the back if you've been to IMS. And I'd see him, and he'd be in his lotus position on the floor, no cushion. After like two days, he's got a cushion. You know, and he's on the cushion. I see he's grimacing a little. You know, three or four days, he's on a chair. You know? <laughs> it's like, this is the conditioned realm. Sometimes the teachers talk about, you know, the benefits of having a body that's subject to pain. You learn to have acceptance. You learn to have compassion. People who can sit there, you know, just like, like a stone, you know, Never, you know, you, you, you miss out on that opportunity to develop acceptance of, you know, the, the disagreeable experiences that are inherent in the conditioned realm. Sometimes there's not pain in the body, right? But it's sort of like, ah, the body doesn't feel that good. I had one sitting today, I just sat down, ah, the body just feels lousy. You know, the first couple of sittings, it felt so good, ah. Now, this, this sitting, it just doesn't feel... Why is that? Why is that? First thing, why is that? Those first two sittings, the body felt so good. And why does it feel not good now? First of all, it was like you know, that conceit that it should feel... 
you know, and it was like, there was no pain really, but it was like kind of sluggish and it was felt kind of weary and it was just sort of a contraction. Uh, and it was like, uh, I don't like this, you know, I don't like this. What am I going to do to get out of this? I'm not going to have a good meditation unless, you know, and then there was, oh yeah, you're giving that talk tonight on acceptance. <laughs> Can I have acceptance of this? Shifted right there, right? And of course, you know, can I just have acceptance? This is the way the body is in this meditation. Can I have acceptance of this? You know, and then just focused really on that one point, put it all aside, just try to focus, find one little spot that feels good. You know, find one little spot that feels good and stake my claim there. It's the way it is. It's the way it is in the conditioned realm. And then, of course, there's the mind, and we talked today about the hindrances, right? The hindrances as being obstacles to meditation. There will be hindrances. There will be obstacles. I talked about the genius of the Buddha and, and understanding that and, 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 and in, the, uh, in the four foundations of mindfulness, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, a separate category of mindfulness, mindfulness of the obstacles to concentration. You will hit obstacles in trying to develop concentration as a human being in this conditioned realm. You will hit obstacles. They're called these five hindrances. This is how you practice with them. The Buddha understood. The Buddha understood the nature of the conditioned realm. He understood that. I mean, you think about the Buddha's own story, where for six years, you know, he practiced uh, ascetic practices and practices of, uh, you know, denial, self-denial. And, uh, and he realized after six years, you know, he wasn't getting to where he wanted to get to. You know, talk about things not going according to plan. You know, but he had enough equanimity, enough composure, enough compassion to continue to move forward. You know, the Buddha had his struggles with the conditioned realm as a human being living in the conditioned realm. You know, he had difficult relatives. You know, his cousin, Devadatta, tried to kill him you know, when he was the Buddha. You know, got up on top of a hill, saw the Buddha coming out a big boulder and rolled it down the hill. You know? The Buddha was, he had lots of detractors. One of the most famous was Rewata, the, the insulter. That was his nickname, the insulter. Rewata the insulter. came to see the Buddha and started insulting the Buddha. So I think I have it bad in the interviews, right? You know, he started insulting the Buddha. The Buddha said to him, you know, do people ever come over to your house for dinner? You know? Uh, and, and, and Rawata said, yeah, yeah, they do. You know? Uh, and, you know, you serve them food. You know, if you serve food to somebody that they don't like, do they eat it? Rawata said, no, of course not. Well, the Buddha said, I choose not to indulge in, in your insults. Yeah. The Buddha understood this is just the nature of the conditioned realm. You know, I always think of, you know, when I think about, you know, the Buddha and, you know, how, you know, he dealt with all the things that he dealt with. Uh, it's like, how did he do that, you know? How did he do that? How did he deal with all the difficulties? You know, he was just as cool as could be. 
you know, and I'm trying to think of like, you know, I'm a teacher, the Buddha was a teacher, how did he deal with all this stuff? You know how he dealt with it? He understood the nature of the conditioned realm. He understood the nature of the conditioned realm. He, he understood that experience was disagreeable. It's like our problem is we just don't, we, it's really hard for us to accept that. He accepted that completely. Experience is going to be disagreeable. Some of it's going to be agreeable, but a lot of it is going to be disagreeable. The Buddha aged. He, grew, he lived to be 80. He had a bad back. You know, I mean, his mind was pretty, pretty spot on, but his back, his physical body, deteriorated as he got old. You know, towards the end, you know, he'd go to give the Dharma talk, and you know, he, he didn't feel up to it. You know, he would say to Ananda or Sariputta, you know, I just my back is killing me. Give the talk tonight. I was I was talking about this, kidding around about this, or telling this story uh, in one of the classes recently online. And I said, could you imagine going to hear the Buddha give a Dharma talk, and 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 you get there, you know, and it's Ananda giving the talk, and you talk about a lack of acceptance, and you get there. A part of the Buddha tonight will be played by Ananda. You know, I mean. You know, and I think the, the Buddha's part of it, you know, he could accept the fact that I had a bad back. He, I have a bad back. I can't give the talk tonight. You know, for a lot of us, it might be unacceptable. Now, I don't care if I got a bad back. I don't care if I can't get up. I'm going to give that talk, right? But he understood the nature of the conditioned realm. And, of course, the Buddha died. The Buddha died. So we experience these hindrances of dullness, restlessness, the other hindrances, but we understand they're part of the process, and we learn not to fight the process. We talked about that today. There's the hindrance of restlessness or the hindrance of dullness, and we learn to accept that as part of the process. It doesn't mean that we don't work with it and apply antidotes and do what we need to do to be present, but we don't fight it. We don't engage in non-acceptance, aversion to it, not wanting. This was really a turning point in my own practice where I just was always stricken in my meditation with dullness, dullness, dullness. Uh, and I learned eventually, and it took me a long time, but I learned acceptance, you know, to accept the dullness, uh, not to fight it, not to give into it, but not to fight it, to cultivate acceptance, not to engage in aversion, in not wanting. And that really shifted my relationship to the hindrances and enabled me to move beyond them in my practice from day to day. So with the hindrances, uh, you know, this is really a critical point in, in meditation practice, how you relate to the hindrances. This is a critical, and we're sort of getting down again to a nuts and bolts elements of element of practice. How you relate to the hindrances is, is a real pivotal aspect of practice. Do you relate to the hindrances with aversion and non-acceptance? How did you relate to them today? With acceptance? You might have related to them with non-acceptance because that's your karmic tendency, you know? But you can change that, right? So you can see that there's non-acceptance and cultivate acceptance. This is the way it is. You know, there's going to be obstacles to concentration practice. Cultivate that quality of acceptance. See, Mara wants you. It's exactly what Mara wants. Mara wants you 
to, you know, he wants a fight, he's, he's picking a fight with you. You know, so you say, well, this is the way it is. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight Mara. I'm not going to fight Mara. This is the way that it is. So if we can develop acceptance of where we are, there's some space, some equanimity. It allows us to be connected to the heart. When we're fighting our experience, if it's the hindrances or the body, we're blocked from the heart. If there's acceptance, there's space, we're able to be connected to the heart, to our innate wisdom, and we know what to do to move forward. Not in the head, but in the heart. We know what to do in terms of moving forward, if it's the hindrances, if it's the body, if it's any other element of practice. If there's acceptance, our wisdom flourishes and our wisdom guides us. And if there's acceptance of things the way that they are, we're able to connect to the heart and to compassion. You know, when we're fighting our experience, we're cut off from the heart and we're cut off from compassion. So really, oftentimes we learn to develop compassion for ourselves when we recognize we're fighting things, we're fighting conditioned experience, we're fighting the law, we're in a battle with the law of the way things are in this human realm. So we recognize we're fighting, we're in a place of non-acceptance, we step back, oh, there's non-acceptance, there's fighting my experience, we cultivate acceptance, this is the way it is in this human realm experience is inherently unsatisfactory. We're able to have some equanimity and we're able to connect to the heart to the quality of compassion in the heart. And this is the deep skill of compassion. And developing compassion requires skill. It's something you can do. When we're able to have acceptance of things the way they are, if it's the body the way it is, if it's the conditions, if it's the mind the way that it is, if it's our meditation the way that it is, if it's the retreat, if it's our life the way that it is, if we can have acceptance, then we're able to have compassion. Compassion for the way we've been fighting our experience, the way that we've been fighting against the law, the way that we've been fighting, struggling against the law of things, not wanting what is, wanting something else. We have compassion for the way that we've, we're fighting. We have compassion for the way that we've been fighting over the course of our lifetime. Or if you want to think about past lifetimes, many lifetimes. As the Buddha said, wandering on through this life and these lifetimes crying and weeping over being separated from what we find pleasing and joined with what we find displeasing. You know, life is going to include what you find displeasing. You know, you're going to be separated from what you find pleasing and joined and with what you find displeasing. That's the way it is. That's not the problem. The problem is crying and weeping over that. We've been crying and weeping over being joined with what we find displeasing and being separated from what we find pleasing enough to fill, to shed enough tears to fill the four oceans. So when we can have acceptance of uh, things the way they are, we can have compassion for this 
struggle that we've been engaged in and that we've been engaged in for so many years, all of our lives. When there's equanimity, acceptance, space, you know, we recognize the karma of our struggle. You know, we recognize this lifetime of tears. You know, this is an understanding that intellectually you might uh, have some sense of, but you know, when there's acceptance and space, we're able to be connected to the heart and to our wisdom, and this understanding transcends intellectual understanding. The heart recognizes the truth of the way that we've been struggling and fighting. And we've all been struggling and fighting you know, in this life, right? We've all been struggling and fighting. You know, when we can accept the way things are and have some space, you know, and see our struggle, you know, we can begin to start to have compassion. We can begin to have compassion for a lifetime of being at odds with conditioned experience. We can have compassion for living in a conditioned realm. You know, this realm is inherently unsatisfactory. Elements of it are very painful. It's a realm, a world in which things are unreliable. Look at the experience of the last three years, the pandemic. This is the nature of conditioned things. You know, it's a world in which, the, as the Buddha teaches us to reflect, in which we'll grow different and separate from all that we find dear and appealing. This is the nature of this realm. We'll grow different and separate from everything we find dear and appealing. And we're asked to learn to accept that as the truth. When we can accept that as the truth, there's compassion. There's compassion, but not until we can accept that as the truth. If we're not accepting that, if we're in a place of non-acceptance, we're blocked off from the heart and we're blocked off from compassion. If there's acceptance of the way things are, we can have compassion for being a conditioned being. You know, because we're, we're conditioned beings. You know, we're Sankara. You know, we're subject to aging, illness, and death. The Buddha said when he realized that he was, you know, and of course, you know, we know the Buddha's story, that he had been shielded from these truths, like many of us have been shielded from them through, uh, you know, the culture and family and just through our own, our own efforts to shield ourselves from these truths that are so hard to, to hold, right? You know, this is why we're here. We're learning to develop these qualities so that we can be with the truth and understand the truth and accept the truth so that we can be in the heart. Because it's only through the acceptance of the truth that we can be in the heart, that we can be connected to the heart, to our wisdom, to compassion, and to love. You know, the Buddha realized, when he realized the truth of death uh, and aging and illness, he said, you know, he says, I've been intoxicated with youth and with life. It's not fitting. You know, the way I kind of take that to be, he was like, oh, it's, you know, he, he wasn't looking at the truth of the way things are. You know, he wasn't looking at the pain that's inherent in life, in the conditioned realm. He was sort of naive or deluded, as we all are. But then he saw the pain. He came to understand the pain that's inherent in this life. So following the Buddha's lead, we acknowledge the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned experience 
the unsatisfactoriness of life. Aging, there's aging, illness, and death. We learn to have acceptance of things the way they are. And this acceptance leads to compassion, real compassion, the compassion that conduces to awakening. So full acceptance of the truth of our experience, full experience of the truth of death leads to full and mature compassion. This is the compassion that drives us towards awakening, that drives us towards awakening, that mobilizes us in our efforts, that keeps us on the breath, that keeps us on the breath, keeps us on the path, keeps us moving forward in our efforts to develop concentration, wisdom, to know freedom, to develop our goodness, out of this compassion that comes out of full acceptance of the truth, of the way things are, we make an effort to know freedom and to know true happiness. True happiness, this is a path of happiness. You can know true happiness in this life. There may have been moments when you knew it today, moments of knowing true happiness. You know, this life by its nature, its conditioned nature, is not perfect. There's an un inherent unsatisfactoriness in this life. We've all had experiences of that today. We've all had experiences of that since this talk began. Since this talk began. Life is not perfect. Life is not perfect. It's inherently unsatisfactory. There's an inherent unsatisfactoriness in life. Life is not perfect, but it's good enough. It's good enough. It's good enough. With all the difficulty, unsatisfactoriness, the limits of the body and the mind, you've got what you need as a human being. You've got what you need. What you've got is good enough. What you've got is good enough as a human being, conditioned being. What you've got is good enough if you use it wisely and skillfully, which is what we're learning to do here. Life is good enough. Life is good enough. It's good enough. It's good enough with all of its unsatisfactoriness. It's good enough. You've got what you need to know a greater happiness, to know true happiness. So let's just close our eyes for a second.